0: Well, good friends, we are in Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6, we're moving along through the book, we're seeing progress in the building of the wall, that's what the uh, initial stage, really that's what the book looks at, is the rebuilding of that wall of Jerusalem and and things are progressing, the wall is getting there, Uh, so it's been fun uh, certainly to see that progress as we have gone through the first six chapters five chapters really we've been looking at some themes in the book we we've talked about the symbolism of a restored wall uh, the idea that you know the borders that protect and they also create a sort of a sense of exclusivity and and how that's important in our lives that we establish those walls to protect us if you will from the ways of the world entering into our hearts a second thing we looked at were the the many diverse ways that the enemy will seek to trip us up remember his goal Uh, is to knock us off of the path that God has set set for us. And so we looked at that. And then finally, a third theme that we've been considering is just the consistent, steady example of Nehemiah's leadership. What an example to us that we can look to. A man that leads is certainly capable in leading, but is also a man of prayer, so he's a spirit-filled leader through the process. And we've been looking at that uh, as well. Well, as we've seen, Nehemiah had to deal with a number of different attacks against him. He had to deal with mocking and jeering. He had to deal with accusations and threats. He even dealt with uh, surprise attacks that came against him. Uh, and then in addition to that, he had to lead people that at times grew discouraged and just didn't feel like they could go on anymore. Or even well-meaning Christians, if you will, people in his life, Jewish guys, that said, look, here's what we're hearing. You've got to stop. You've got to run. You've got to hide. You've got to protect yourself wrong counsel, but from well-meaning people that were trying to help him to preserve himself. And so as you can see, the attacks were many and the attacks uh, were diverse. And at last week we studied chapter five, and we took notice of a method of the enemy or a scheme of the enemy, the idea of if you can't beat them, join them. And how the enemy sort of got behind enemy lines and influenced the people to act outside of the will of God. And, and Jew began to rip off Jew, and people were taking advantage of others, and they were violating the Old Testament law. And as we saw, or what well, we didn't see, I should say, nowhere in chapter 5 is there mention of two things. The enemies, they're not mentioned at all. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. And nowhere is really any mention of rebuilding or building on the walls. Everything had stopped, everything had ceased. And in, in this case, you might say, it wasn't even the enemy's fault. It was the people's fault. And they were divided on the inside there. Well, Nehemiah and these people are commissioned to do a job that for a hundred years, roughly, hasn't been done. And that is to rebuild the wall. They were to secure a place where the people would be protected from attack and they would be preserved from compromise. And the devil, never wanting good for the people of God, he has to do everything in his power to prevent that from happening and seeing that things like taunts and threats and fear, seeing that all of those things were ineffective, the enemy of God and his people instead turns to the tactic of dividing the people of God by feeding into their own selfishness and disobedience. And so we have enemies like Sanballat. We have enemies like Tobiah and Geshem having no effect in their efforts to cause the work of God. And so what do they do? They go back to the drawing board and they come back again. And this time they tempt the Jews to sin against one another. Brother begins to sin against brother. And the people of God descend into the condition of only being interested in themselves. And the work of God is never going to advance when all we really care about is how I progress and how I move forward. And so Satan, unable to do through his initial schemes of outside attack, is now able to accomplish by attacking from within, appealing to the Jews, selfishness and sin. And what's the result? Just what he wanted all along, that the work of God would cease. The devil doesn't care how he trips us up, only that he does trip us up. And so, Nehemiah, we saw last week, he catches wind of all this. He catches wind of people crying out to God in prayer and wondering, God, where are you? And why am I selling my kids into slavery because we don't have enough? He catches wind of all of that, and he hears the great outcry, and he confronts the people. The people that are sinning, he confronts them. He calls their behavior sin. We saw that in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 9. He challenges them to repent. We saw that in chapter 10. Let us abandon this way of acting. And then he demanded of them, this is chapter, chapter 5, verse that they take steps of repentance. Don't just tell me you're sorry. Don't just assure me you're never going to do this again. But do something about it. And step up and, and correct the error. Give the people back what you have taken from them. And we concluded chapter 5 happily. The people listened. And they took the necessary steps of repentance. And the people now could get back again to doing what God had called them to do. That is to build this wall. And so I think there is a word of encouragement there for us. Because no doubt every one of us have stepped out to try to do the work that God would have us to do. And that could be something like running a ministry or it could simply be running a home and trying to parent our kids well, or taking a job and honoring the Lord in the midst of that. It could be any of those things, and we've stepped out and said, God, I'm going to do this as you would have me to do it, and we've fallen short, and we've failed in one way or another. I think Nehemiah 5 is a word of encouragement to us, that perhaps you have been sidetracked. You can get right back to it. You can repent, you can make things right, and then you can get back to doing what God has called you to do. And I think that's good news, and a good reminder for us. Well, now we come to chapter 6. And once again, the enemies of Nehemiah, they return to distract him and the others from building the wall of of the city. And as we said, they've tried various methods. Now they're going to try three additional methods. Let's look at them quickly, and then we'll go back and discuss them. The first is found in verse 2. You notice there it said, Sambalad and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together. Well, that's the first method, if you will, a truce. Come on, we can do this together. I'm the enemy of you, but let's shake hands and we'll be in union with one another. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's meet together and put the past and all that negative stuff behind us. There'll be a truth with the enemy. We'll talk about that. The second one is found in verse 5. You'll notice there, it refers to an open letter. It says, in the same way Sanballat the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter. An open letter was sort of like a letter to the editor. Or some kind of uh, public posting on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, which uh, doesn't give a very positive description of Nehemiah. Bad-mouthing Nehemiah in public for everyone to see. That's the second method today. And then the third method is found in verse 12. And it says, And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, that is, Shemaiah the prophet, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And so the third method that the enemy will use in this chapter is to hire a false prophet that is paid off to publicly denounce and discredit Nehemiah. Well, if we could say one thing about ne- uh, Sanballat, Abai, and Geshem, the guy, they're persistent. And they just won't quit. And they are determined. We're going to bring this guy down, and we're going to stop this particular work. They're persistent. And you know who else is persistent? The enemy of our soul. The enemy of our soul is persistently going to try to knock you off track from what God wants to do in you and through you in your remaining time here upon the earth. And it will come at us again and again. It's the reason why, as followers of Christ, that we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Not checking in with Jesus every Sunday. Not checking in with him every time the retreat rolls around and sort of getting yourself back on track again. But keeping your eyes on him day by day And I'll be honest, for me, moment by moment. Because as I take my eyes off of him and I let it get on the things that are around me, I get distracted. And old Greg starts to come out. And I become a grump and all these sorts of things. And it's when I... Who said amen? I heard an amen there. It's when I get my eyes back on the Lord and I sort of right myself and steady myself that I can walk the walk that God would have me to walk. And so we must keep our eyes on the Lord. So that's just sort of a preview. Now let's dig in. Let's read through the first 14 verses. It'll give kind of a sense of the full story, and that's only a portion of the chapter, but sort of a full story of what's going on. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 1. It says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Continuing, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I'll leave it and come to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner, in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Verse 6, in it was written, it's reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Verse 8, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God strength in my hands now when i went into the house of shemaiah the son of deliah son of mehetabel who was confined to his home he said let's meet together in the house of god everybody wants to have a meeting let's meet together in the house of god within the temple let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to you they are coming to you by night but i said should such a man as i run away and what man such as i could go into the temple and live i will not go in And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Well, as I said... In this new barrage of attacks, Sandballot and the others, they begin by approaching sort of with their, their hand extended. Hey, come on, let's just shake hands. They say, come, let us meet together in verse 2. Now remember, all along in our book, the goal of the enemy was to get Nehemiah to stop working. And sometimes it's out and out conf- confrontation, but what does it really matter? If I go out and confront you, or if I come and say, hey, let's have a picnic together. Either way, you're going to come down off the wall and you're going to stop working. And Nehemiah sort of sees through that. Their goal was to get them to stop working. And now that that is not happening, the enemy is desperate to try anything, even a truce. And of course, to accept the offer, Nehemiah will have to stop working. And he sees through it. But how cunning of the enemy to try and trick Nehemiah. And how cunning of our enemy as well to come and try and trick us with supposedly good things. It's good to make up with people, right? good to live at peace with all men as the scripture says so you can certainly look at it and make an argument great I'll go I'll have this picnic we'll shake hands we'll be friends no one will bother me and I can get back to the work and continue on but Nehemiah sees through it and he, and we notice here that this appeal come on take a break and think about Nehemiah's flesh think about your flesh here you are you've been working all day for months upon months upon months well a couple of months really and you've been really pouring yourself into it and now somebody's inviting you to a picnic your flesh is going to say, you know, I could use a break. I could stop what I can do, and I could just go, and I could take the day off. You know what? I deserve a break. And finally, I'll be able to get done with this fighting, done with this tension, and shake hands with this guy, and as we said, let bygones be bygones. That appeals to our flesh. And so we just want to jump at that and say, absolutely. But Nehemiah, through prayer, is able to discern some things, and he's too wise to be tricked. So, of course, the break appealed to him, And I'm sure sure he would have liked to be able to just take a deep breath and not have to worry about people coming against him anymore. It's not hard for us to imagine that. But Nehemiah knows this. Nehemiah knows what he was called to do. And that is to build a wall, not to have picnics. He was called to build a wall. And until the Lord told him not to do that anymore, then that's what he was going to do. And we also see Nehemiah discerns their real intentions here. When they extended the hand of reconciliation, it was actually uh, a hand extended to lure him. It was like a fish in the line or whatever, and you put a lure on the end of that. It was just designed to suck them in, bring them in, so that he would go out into the field, and there perhaps they might even kill him. And so we read there, when they say, come, let us meet together, he knows their real intentions. He's committed to the work. Look at verse 3. It says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Well, I leave it and come down to you. seems that he's saying, you know, I see what you're trying to do. And it's not going to work. I'm staying here and I'm going to continue working. Now look at verse 4. The enemy's persistence. It says, and they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. So this is at least the sixth time that these guys come and harass Nehemiah, and this particular time, they come four separate times. We also saw last week that some well-meaning Jews tried to dissuade Nehemiah. It says they came to him ten times. And so, once or twice, you can deal with that. Five times, ten times, fifteen times, it begins to get a little bit annoying. And it begins to get frustrating. Frustrating enough to cause you sometimes to snap. Or perhaps to give in. Frustrating enough to cause you to even lose your witness. But Nehemiah doesn't allow it, and he just continues to continue on. And I'll give you just free nickels worth of advice. Free nickels worth? It's going to cost a nickel. Uh, I'll just give you some advice. You're going to struggle in your walk with Jesus until the day you die. Amen? That's great news. It's just truth. And you might as well know it now as you're going into the rest of your life that it's going to be a struggle from now until the day you die. Your flesh, even if there's just a little bit of your flesh that remains by the time you die, is going to want to reign, that little bit of flesh. And so there'll be that constant struggle and the constant appeal to that flesh. You don't have to follow the ways of God. It's not Sunday. You know, you do it every day of the week. Saturday you have all. Friday night you can have all. Or something. There'll just be that constant struggle. And just know it. And every day, you gotta, they're going to persist. The enemy will persist against you. You've got to persist against it, so to speak. And so Nehemiah, he does that. Fifteen times or so, they come against him, but he doesn't give in, and he continues on. Now let's look, go on to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. Sanballat returns a fifth time. Well, he actually sends a servant this particular time, but the idea is the same. And Nehemiah is it seems ready with an answer. He sees the guy walking up, got a letter in his hand, whatever it may be, and he's like, look, buddy, I already gave you my answer. I'm not coming with you. Except this time, he's not inviting him to come out to a picnic. In verse 5 here, we see that he's not inviting him, but rather, instead, he's presenting him an open letter. It says, Sam Ballard, for the fifth time, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And as I mentioned, an open letter was sort of like a letter... To the editor again a posting on Facebook or Twitter which uh, slanders Nehemiah publicly now this could have been done back then I don't know by posting it on the telephone poles around town or it could have been a direct mailing that was sent to all of the homes or perhaps even this servant just wandered around the wall wall with a megaphone of sorts and just called out and this is what's really going on with uh, Nehemiah you guys better be on your guard you better watch it well here's what the letter said verse 6 it says, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. Well, if Geshem also says it, it must be true. Uh, it's reported amongst the nations, Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah, meaning Nehemiah, and now the real king will hear of these reports, the letter says. So now come, let us take counsel together notice here they want to shake hands they want to be pals but Nehemiah wouldn't meet with them Oh, you don't want to meet with us huh okay well now we're gonna take make it ugly and so we'll just have to accuse you of treachery and deception and that you're seeking to set yourself up as a king now this wasn't true we all know it we've read the story it's not true but does that really matter because once it gets out there and once it gets posted now everyone's gonna wonder and everyone's gonna question huh I wonder, yeah, maybe. And they begin to think about it here. Because once the rumors get out there, regardless of the facts, many are going to believe it. And here these guys are questioning Nehemiah's integrity. And many of us, we can deal with a lot of things. But not the questioning of our integrity. You can say, I'm not that smart, or that I'm unlearned. You can say, I'm not that talented, or not that skilled in a particular area. But don't say, I can't be trusted. And I think that's where many of us say, you know what, man? I've worked very hard for my good name, and our good name is something we earn. And it's not earned easily. It takes a lifetime to build a good name, but it takes a moment to destroy it. And I'd rather be the one destroying it than some lies that are brought up against me. And so here are these lies that are brought against Nehemiah, accusing him of what they're accusing him. And the temptation for Nehemiah to respond to those false accusations, I have to think, had to be very very great very strong because they would have been in my life and I suspect yours as well but notice how he responds in verse 8 it says "Then I sent to him saying no such things as you say have been done you're making them up you're inventing them out of your own mind Now I remember when my kids were young and one of them this happened just about daily one of them would come crying to me saying so and so something like this so and so called me a big face I'm like what? You know, like meaning my little brother, my little sister, or whatever called me a big face, and I would say big face, and then I would say, do you have a big face? And they'll say, no, I don't have a big face, and I said, well, then what do you care what they call you? And we would have this conversation again, and my wife, she's they're crying, and she's patting them on the back and loving them, and I'm just like, don't worry about it, just go on, and then I'd find the other one, don't call them a big face, and we'd move on. But the idea is, what do you care if it's not true? Why do you let it bother you so much? But we do, don't we? When the accusations come, we do. Well, here's Nehemiah. He doesn't, though, and I appreciate that about him. Nehemiah just simply says, yeah, that's not true. You're making them up. And then he goes on with his day. I really appreciate that. Well, Nehemiah, he could rest in his integrity because he knew that the things that they were saying, that he hadn't done those things, and he also knew that that wasn't even his intention. He had no thought of becoming the king of Jerusalem Or anything like that, and so he simply chose to ignore the accusations and go on with what he was supposed to be doing, and he does notice he does that by asking God to strengthen him to do that. And so verse nine says, "Their hands will, they are wanted to frighten me, and so on." And then the end says, "But now, oh my God, strengthen my hands." And so he knew that any attempts to defend himself was going to fall on deaf ears anyway, and so he just simply praised God help me to do what you've called me to do and don't allow me to get distracted i think that's a really good prayer because we could easily get thrown off by the enemy we could get distracted but he just simply says god i know what you called me to do would you help me to do it help me to keep my eyes on you help my flesh because even our flesh can rise up and respond i'm a good man and i wouldn't do those things and i'll show you you know or something like that and we get all twisted in this process here and so here's nehemiah and he says god help me and god as we see, he does. What well, we also saw earlier, Nehemiah discerns their real intentions. Intentions. Look at verse five, or excuse me, verse nine. It says, "For they all wanted to frighten us into thinking their hands will drop; they'll give up." So Nehemiah again, he discerns that they want to exacerbate him with one more hassle that'll give up the work. You see, the enemy cannot make them stop, but they can entice them to stop. And the decision, whether it's Nehemiah or you and I, to give up the work that God has called us to do is ours alone. It's not the enemy's decision. And so in the same way, we see in the New Testament that the enemy, the devil, is powerless against you and I. Now we know that the enemy, he can tempt us. We know that he can taunt us. We know that he can harass us. But what the enemy cannot do is compel us. That the decision to sin lies in our own hands, at all times you say yes but i'm a sinful person sometimes my flesh just comes out i can't help it the truth today is this yes you can you can help it and i think that's great news there's a glorious promise that is found in romans chapter 6 it says we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin The words that Paul chose there are wonderfully descriptive, and it it gives us a picture. Where Paul says, it's translated in the English, at least in my version, where our old self was, it says, brought to nothing. It's a term which means to render idle or powerless. And you could translate it as paralyzed. And so the idea is this, it's to say this, that our enemy, whether it's the devil, whether it's one of his minions, whether it's some persistent annoyance like a sandballot, or whether it's even our own flesh, but that the enemy can talk a good game, but has no power against us because the enemy is paralyzed. So if you are in Christ, and that means that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the Bible says in Second Corinthians five that you are a new creation. And the only one then that has the power to quit, and you're the only one then who has the power to quit and give up the work that God has called you to do. The only one with the power is you. And the enemy can talk a good game, and he can threaten you, and he can taunt you and harass you, but he can't compel you. And so here you have Nehemiah. And for the second time he discerns that they're trying to frighten him, trying to get him to give up the work but he discerns their intentions. and You saw in verse 2, he said, I discerned that they wanted to harm me. Or, I saw that they wanted to harm me. And now in verse 9, he sees that they want to frighten him. Now discernment is the ability to judge matters according to the way that God views them. And not according to their outward appearance. And we know from the Scripture that discernment is as much a skill as it is a gift. Now we learn from the Scripture that discernment is a spiritual gift. We see in 1 Corinthians it says, to one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, um, gifts of healing by the same Spirit, the working of prophecy, and to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's the idea of discernment. In fact, that same Greek phrase is sometimes translated in English just simply as the word discernment. So discernment is a spiritual gift to judge matters according to the way that God sees those matters. And that could be for good or for evil. And so we could look at a person there, it's not just to the negative, but to be discerning is to see the positive just as much as the negative. To be discerning is to see the good that others might miss just as much as seeing the evil that is not so readily apparent. And the reason I bring it up is sadly sometimes so-called discernment ministries are really just negative and cynical people that can't find good in anything. But discernment is just as much being able to see the good. It's seeing things as God sees things uh, and not just on the outward appearance. So discernment is a spiritual gift. But here's the important thing, because some of us might just say, well, I don't have that gift. You know, that sounds like something important people should have. I don't need it. I won't seek it, whatever it may be. But the scripture also makes it clear that discernment is a spiritual skill as well. And as a skill, it's something that can be developed and should be developed in each one of us as a skill it's something that can be developed it can be grown in us and so the definition remains the same seeing things as god sees things and you can develop that and i'd like to suggest a couple of ways number one is getting to know god's word if you want to know what god thinks then read and study his word because he tells us what he thinks right in there and so get to know his word and you will get to know the mind of the lord and you will develop the skill of discernment secondly grow in spiritual maturity well how do we do that you told me already to study the word isn't that how i grow in spiritual maturity no that's how you grow in knowledge you grow in spiritual maturity when you take the word and you apply it to your life and you take the word or, or the leading of the spirit and you say yes lord i will walk in obedience that's how you walk or grow in spiritual maturity you have to exercise if you will your spiritual muscles by putting those things into practice so that they become second nature you know one of the things is I talk to young couples that are progressing toward getting married they're dating that sort of thing and we talk about this idea of keeping yourselves pure and one of the reasons why is not just because the Bible says it certainly that is one and that's enough to be honest with you but one of the reasons why is because when you learn to deal with your flesh before you're married When you're married down the road and some other young lady comes along or some other guy comes along, you will have already almost second nature dealt with your flesh. And you will have taught your flesh, put it down. You don't need to go down that avenue. You can do those things that I've called you to do. And so we develop skills as we put those, if you will, into practice. We develop spiritual maturity. So first is get to know His Word. Second, exercise your spiritual muscles. And then the third thing is ask God for the gift. And the Bible says to come to God and ask Him and say, you know what, Lord? I need spiritual discernment. And I know I can develop my skills in all that, but there are other instances where I don't know what the Word has to say on that particular topic. It may not say anything, and I just need guidance and I need direction. And that's certainly a prayer that I pray regularly is that the Lord would give me the ability to discern a gift. Well, spiritual discernment, it's really important for the church and for the individual members that make up the church. And many Christians today we suffer from a lack of discernment. And sometimes we follow teachers and leaders that might give a good appearance, but they don't walk in the nature of Christ. Other times we accept things blindly without comparing them with the whole counsel of God's word. We need spiritual discernment, and failure on our parts to exercise discernment, it can do real spiritual damage to the work of the Lord. And Nehemiah demonstrates for us repeatedly in this chapter discernment. He exercises discernment. He's able to see through the schemes of these enemies, and thus he's able to stay on task with what God has called him to do. Well, as we observed, the enemy's persistent. So let's look again. Verse 10, he comes at them one more time. Verse 10 says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, Who was confined to his home he said let's meet together at the temple in the temple let's close the doors because they're coming to kill you and they're gonna do so by night by this night it seems he's implying so the next scheme is they send an old prophet to Nehemiah who gives him counsel to run into the temple to hide now I don't know why but I assume he's old probably by the fact that he's confined to his home but he could be a young fellow I don't know exactly But this particular guy here, he comes against him by suggesting to him, let's run into the temple. Now, hold on one second, I lost my notes. We'll edit that from the tape for those who care. Here we are. Now that sounds reasonable. Because you can't lead if you're dead right so it sounds reasonable people are trying to kill me okay let's go to safety it sounds like you can make an argument this guy shemaiah he's a prophet and so one would have to presume if he's a prophet that god must have sent him nehemiah is probably thinking possibly thinking you know who am i to reject this prophecy and this advice but he does reject the offer and so we look at that and we see verse 11 he says should such a man as i run away and he goes on from there. Now, that sounds like he's being a hard guy. You know, a man like me would run. I would never run. I'm strong. I'll stand up to anything, whatever it may be. But he's not being a hard guy. His point is rather this. He's a regular guy. as it, That is opposed to being a religious leader or a priest. Because remember, going into the temple, anybody can go to the courts. But going into the building, into the temple itself, that was reserved for the priests. And Nehemiah, he may have been a leader, but he wasn't a spiritual leader. By that, he was not a priest. And so he was not authorized to enter into the temple, even to save his own life. And so additionally, Nehemiah, he knows that running and hiding in this way is going to violate what the Scripture says. Plus, it would stop the work that God had called him to do. And that was to be building this particular wall. So Shemaiah is coming to him. He says, look, man, you've got to do what you got to do. Forget about all of that other stuff. Forget about what the Bible says in this instance here. You can come back to it later. You've got to do what you've got to do. You've got to preserve yourself. And Nehemiah, he sees through the scheme. He, it seems that he reasons with himself and he says, why would God have me stop the work now? He didn't have me stop any other time the last two months. Secondly, why would he have me violate his law in doing so by entering into this temple? And taking the equation, he says, A plus B equals, this isn't from God. And this guy is making this thing up. So he says in verse 12, and I understood that God had not sent him. What Nehemiah perceives is that if he did go into the temple, then Shemaiah and the others would use it against him and give him the reputation of a lawbreaker, which would ruin his good name. So I I sort of picture it this way. Here's the plot. That Nehemiah and Shemaiah, they would arrive at the temple... And Shemaiah would say something like, after you. And Nehemiah will say, no, sir, after you. And he'll say, no, after you. And he'll say, okay. And so Nehemiah will walk in and he'll get inside there and he'll be looking around at everything. And then all of a sudden he'll hear, Nehemiah. And he'll turn and there's a guy with a camera who's going to take a picture. And the next thing you know, it's a National Enquirer or on TMZ or something like that with a headline that says, Lawbreaker. And Nehemiah's dumbfounded looking picture. And so Nehemiah sees through all of this and he's too discerning. And so he declines Shemaiah's invite, and instead, he instead notice he turns to the Lord in prayer. He says, "Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things, and also to that prophetess Noadiah. We don't have much info about her or how she's involved here, but somehow she's connected with trying to trick him, and the rest of the prophets like Shemaiah who wanted to make me afraid. He doesn't get mad." at all these folks that are coming against him. At least he doesn't demonstrate that. He doesn't begin plotting how he's going to get back at them and get even with them. And he doesn't even begin to come up with ways to defend himself with words and actions. But he just simply gives it to the Lord. This is remarkable, this guy. He gives it to the Lord and he says, you know what, Lord, you take care of it. Everyone's coming against me, but Lord, you take care of it. And he's a great example to us of a regular guy that is dealing with all sorts of distractions who's just looking to serve the Lord well. And I'm so grateful for his faithful witness and testimony because what it tells us is very much what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us is that this walk of faith, it can be done. Even by regular guys. You don't have to be some super spiritual guy or gal in order to do what God has called you to do. It can be done. And we can walk the walk that God is calling us to do. We can discern the attempts of the enemy to trip us up. We can keep our eyes on the Lord and we can commit our ways to Him. And like Nehemiah, we can see fruit in our endeavors. Isn't, isn't that what we would like? Is that our lives would be used for the advancement of the kingdom of God when all is said and done and we enter into the kingdom that we'll simply hear, well done. Let me show you around a little bit. You see those folks over there? You had a part in their life. Wouldn't that be exciting for all of us that that's all I need? I don't need anything more than that, Lord. I just simply want to serve you well and be used, and hopefully help some other people get into heaven as well. And so Nehemiah is doing that, and he's, he sets the example for us. Now let's continue. The last couple of verses that we'll look at today, verse 15, it says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now, think about that. How long has it laid in ruins, lying in ruins? have said it a lot of times over the last six weeks. About 100 years. Thank you, Jake Downs, my son. He's a good boy it's all paid off a uh, hundred years it sat in ruins it's completed in 52 days why because the lord was with them and as it said they had a mind to work i also think it's significant since we have the number of days that it took to complete 52 days that's about two months how long did they pray for this work remember that from the first chapter We're going to go back, and we're going to do the whole study again here, all right? Well, I'll remind you, it it told us there in chapter 1 that they prayed for four months to come to this particular place, and the work only took two months. So they prayed twice as long as the actual work took to complete. And sometimes we think that prayer is just sort of something we throw quickly at the beginning, or if we're real spiritual, we throw another prayer at the end because we remember... You know, the story of the ten lepers. Only one came back and said, thanks, I'm not going to be those nine. I'll come back and I'll say thanks. So we throw a quick prayer in the beginning, a quick prayer in the end, and the rest of the time we're working frantically. But he prays for four months to accomplish a job that takes less than two months. We need to bathe our efforts in prayer. And so I'd encourage you, we gather once a month as a church to pray. And we do so because we're busy throughout the month. We should probably be doing it more. But nonetheless, carve out that time Come to those times of prayer so that everything that we do here in the Lord is bathed in prayer. They complete the work in 52 days. It's a testimony. It's a testimony that there is indeed in Jerusalem a God that lives and reigns. Look at verse 16. Our enemies heard of it. That's the idea of a testimony. Our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem because they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Remember that knucklehead who said, that's my derogatory term for people. You remember that guy who said, if a fox goes up on the wall, it'll fall down? That they thought they were real great? And you Jews, look at you people. You come back here, you can't accomplish anything. Well now, they have fallen greatly in their own esteem because what they see is that with the help of our God. God is involved with here. That's a testimony. And when something has the fingerprints of God on it, the enemy takes notice. And notice also, the enemy takes notice that the work was accomplished because God was in it. So the enemy takes notice, not just of the work, but that God is in the work. And this wasn't done because there were some committed men that served and labored on the wall. It wasn't done because of Nehemiah's great leadership, and it wasn't accomplished because of his ingenious plans to both work and to defend themselves. And certainly they all contribute to the success of the project, but it was accomplished because God was in it. And the point is this, that I'm making at least, that Nehemiah and the others, they labored in such a way so that people saw the hand of God. You know, sometimes we can labor even for God so that people can see us and can be drawn to us and say, wow, that Calvary Chapel, Mercer County, those people, instead of saying that Jesus and those people or that particular ministry, but instead that Jesus or that particular person Nehemiah labored in such a way that when all was said and done, the people said God was with those people and all the glory goes to him. He was the one that had been magnified and so now he is the one that will be glorified. And my prayer for each of us as we seek to serve the Lord and certainly my prayer for us as a body of believers is that our labor for the Lord would be done in the same way. Amen? Can you agree with that? Let's pray. Father, we do want to give you glory and honor. We want to lift your name high above Lord, we are reminded of that Scripture. Lord, which says, if the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will be drawn unto Him. And and Lord, we know that refers in some ways to the cross, but also, Lord, just simply, it refers to honoring You and glorifying You and lifting You up so that people might see You. Lord, exposing their need for a Savior and then, Lord, being drawn to the only One that's able to save their soul. Father, we thank You for... uh, the example of Nehemiah once again. We thank You for the finished work. Lord, we thank You for the testimony that if we fail in chapter 5, we can get up and get back to it in chapter 6. Lord, we thank You for the steady example of leadership, of coming back to You, keeping our eyes on You, discerning the the intents of the evil one. And so, Lord, there's a lot here for us to learn, to apply. And we just ask for Your Spirit now as I hope he's been doing throughout, I suspect, you would take these words, you would take this chapter, and you would apply it to each of our hearts, Lord, that you would really just really bring to the forefront of our thinking just exactly how it fits with our day-to-day as we leave here and we enter back into, Lord, the work week. So, Lord, teach us. Thank you for being such a good, loving, kind Father. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, for giving us your spirit. And we pray by your spirit that you would teach us and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen.